This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. ValueHive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T-I-K-R dot com forward slash hive. All right, Eric Mokaya, I have the pleasure of speaking with you. You are one of the most underfollowed people on Twitter, um, at least on my Twitter role, I'm sure. I'm sure on others as well. You have done some interesting work, which we're going to dive into. You worked at Colossus, which for anyone listening, that is Patrick O'Shaughnessy's little um, brainchild development, I guess, on the podcasting side. And you're just a very interesting, unique person, personality, and you bring a different perspective to markets. I mean, for one, you're a Kenyan living in Sweden, which is really interesting. Um, and, and, and two, you invest in, um, you know, Nordic companies and also some small um, African businesses. And I'm really excited to dive into all of that. But before we do, who is Eric Makaya and how'd you get started investing and teaching and all this stuff? Thanks uh, for having me, actually. Uh, this is my first podcast so I'm, uh, to be interviewed in, so I feel such an honor and a privilege. Uh, it feels like a coming out kind of graduation. Uh, so thank you for having me. My name is Eric, as you've heard. Like, I'm from Kenya. I've lived in Sweden for six, seven years now. Uh, before that, I've li- I'd lived in Kenya for most of my life, and then I'd also had a bit of exchange to, to Norway. So I'm, I'm a Kenyan uh, living in Sweden. So a, a person who likes torturing themselves in the winter up north uh, because I'm more acclimatized to the life in warm weather, so to speak. Uh, I'm a PhD student. I study a, I'm a PhD in accounting right now. So I have a background in finance also. I have a master's in finance. Uh, I've grown up mostly, as I've said, in Kenya. I have a passion for Africa, football. I love finance and investments. Uh, I started in accounting and then came, switched over to finance uh, and then went back again to accounting. So I, I describe myself as someone who operates as the intersection of accounting and finance. So basically just, that's just a little bit about me. Uh, yeah. So where did, where did that interest start? Was it while you were in Kenya or was it during your, during your studies and then you really developed the passion, you know, after, after you started taking some of these classes? So, I mean, I, my interest in business really started with my single mom. I think back in Kenya, she, she was worked hard, like to take care of us, uh, me and my brother for uh, most of our lives. So I think seeing her work really hard in a small business, uh, she started, uh, I think she started, I think with, uh, if I recall, like a hundred dollars. And then she built that up slowly to a business that was able to like, take care of us, pay for our school fees uh, because education is quite expensive. And I think, I think that's where I noticed firsthand the power of business. I think that's why I'm really a, um, a big advocate of what business can do to society in terms of providing jobs, providing opportunities for the, the less fortunate in society. So I think from observing that, but I, I still didn't get the, the, a grasp of really what business really meant until I went to university. Um, I think in high school, I was uh, studying in a small school in the slums. So I, I had to work really hard to get the opportunity to go to the university. So the thing is that it's only the top students in Kenya who usually get to go 
to the uh, university and be able to get government scholarship and be able to finish school. So I knew that I had this really small window of opportunity to be able to go there. And having seen my mom struggle, I realized like this was the opportunity I needed to, uh, to take advantage of. So I took, I worked really hard, studied long hours, more than most of the students in the school, and then managed to be, I think, one of the all one or two students, top students in the schools who managed wow. to go to the university. So one of the only or two, three or only students who went to the university directly and were able to get the government scholarship. So I think having arrived in campus then, that's when it hit me like account, the power of accounting. So I started learning accounting and then started finance a little bit. And then I think that's when I made my first investment, I think in a company called Safaricom in Kenya. Uh, I think at that point, I didn't really understand what investments was, but it was an IPOing at that time in 2008. So I bought a few uh, shares, but then the share price sunk by 50%. So I sold it at a, at a, at a loss. So it was quite the initiation into the finance world. Yeah. So I think I remember selling it and never coming back until uh, I, think, I think seven years later. So it took me seven years wow. again to come back to invest. So it's, uh, <laughs> it's quite the experience. So what type of what type of business did your did your mother start in in uh, in Kenya? Oh, my mom used to sell buy and sell uh, like a variety of products, mostly let's say maize. Uh, I think in bulk, like maize is quite a like corn. I would say in the US, uh, that's more like a staple product in Kenya. So then a lot of people need it. So she would go to various places to go buy it from places like even Uganda and then bring it over across the border. So she's very she's very resourceful. So I've seen a work long hours, put in a lot of effort. And I think that's where I learned the power kind of, of also uh, just studying really hard and working really hard. But I think also like one of the things that I realized is that she never finished school uh, herself. Like she she left off at uh, in the 11th grade, I would say. So I think uh, she, you could always see this in her that she always longed to go back in school. So I think she wanted mm. me to get the best of that education. So in that way, then I kind of watching her made me want to really work hard. And then she taught me all these things. I think she, uh, and then at some point, of course, now you kind of get, you know, beyond her level now of knowledge. And then she has to kind of challenge, you know, to get into books. And that's when I got into yep. books and then started studying a bit more. So I think that's, that's how I got started. But then, yeah, the passion has kept growing over the years and that's how I am where I am at least right now. And you said when you were in school, the, were you, were you selected? Was it just out of the entire country of Kenya? There was only a few students that would get this scholarship. I mean, I assume that's, you know, lots of people and you're one of the, what, you know, less than 10, I guess. Uh, I would, maybe I painted a wrong picture at the beginning. The thing is that in the school where I was, I was one of the only students to get to the top. So the thing okay. is that uh, in the entire country, you have, let's say, I can't remember the exact figures, like, but I think 400,000 people do the exam every year. But okay. out of that, around 70,000 back then would go to, to university. So you have to be part of the 70,000 and to get the real, the courses that are really kind of influential business and engineering and all, you have to be among, let's say the top 10% of that 70,000 students. So I was part of that, I think. And that's how I got the opportunity to go to campus directly. So I remember even going to campus, I was, uh, I was quite, <laughs> I was one of the few who came from kind of nondescript kind of schools out there. So the rest were saying like they're coming from the big schools around and I had to tell them, okay, do you know this big school? Uh, okay, I, I come from right next to it. Like, yeah. <laughs> I had to describe myself. So, 
So it was it was interesting being in campus. I, I did feel a bit of uh, intimidation coming to campus then, like the first year undergraduate, uh, because a lot of the people are from more better schools. Uh, but then I think I learned to be my own quite soon and then uh, took my place and then, yeah, then life went on. For someone like me who has never been to Kenya and it's a place I want to go, what's it like there? What's, what's, what's everyday life like in Kenya, you know, for, for someone like yourself or, you know, someone like a student, you know, whether, you know, you've got your school, you've got extracurricular activities. What's the, what's the business aspect like there? Is it a very entrepreneurial country? Kenyans are very resourceful, I'd say. I think uh, next to Nigerians, you'd find them kind of, uh, we have this joke that you say, you find a Nigerian almost everywhere you go on the planet. So I think Kenyans are kind of similar in the sense that they're very hardworking people. Uh, they love, uh, I mean, it's eight to five work most of the day. Most of the, uh, most life is happens in the informal sector, I would say. So there's a bit of the formal sector, but most like most of the businesses are in the informal sector. Like my mom grew up in that, so I think that's a bulk of the economy. But uh, Kenya, typical Kenyan life would be: I mean, wake up uh, quite early, work hard, and go home. It's it's just similar to America, so so to speak. But I guess like the income levels are a bit lower, but then the people are more compared to Sweden. Uh, let me let me just try and compare con- contrast a little bit Sweden yeah. because that's where yeah, I've been perfect. a little bit more. And, and Kenya. So I would say uh, Sweden, of course, has the seasons, you know, like the winter and summer and all, which right now it's winter and it's extreme cold, minus 10. So in Kenya, the coldest it can be is about 10 degrees. And then that's really, we're freezing. You feel like we're freezing. So the feel is like we're freezing. But and the seasons, they are like rain season, long rain, short rain. And right now they are having, a, they should be having the warm time, warmest time of the year in January, February. So I wish I could be having my holidays there right now and then not in Sweden. That would be right. Lovely. So I think that's that's a little bit of the contrast. And the people down there are a bit more, they're more warmer and friendly, I would say. Like they, if you want to ask for direction in the streets, it's very easy. You can walk up to anyone. But I think like living in Sweden, at least the culture is a bit, people a bit more, people love their space. It's a bit more uh, like people don't come up to you suddenly and just talk to you. It's a bit of like, okay, you need to take time to get to know people. So I remember coming to Sweden. That's one thing that I struggled with a lot, like getting getting to make friends takes a lot, a, a long time. But in Kenya, mm. if I meet people, uh, even once I call them my friends, but in Sweden, for me to get to call your friend, you have to have, <laughs> we have to have hang out, done a lot of stuff. And here, a lot of people prefer meeting people through activities, common activities, but in Kenya, it's more like if I, if I meet you in the streets, it's easier for us to talk very quickly and just get engaged in conversation. So it's, it's a little bit of difference in culture, but I've come to appreciate both and and be, become the best of the two worlds and pick the best from the two worlds and just make them to be me. Right? Yeah. yeah, it reminds me of when I used to live in New York and the people in New York. I mean, I don't want to offend anybody that lives in New York because I know I've got some listeners there, but it's definitely different when you go from New York to a place like uh, Georgia or anywhere down south. People are a little bit more friendly, uh, so it's kind of <laughs> it's kind of kind of funny that 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 you mentioned that. Um, now you said you're an avid footballer, uh, you know, as, as as I guess we call it in the states, soccer. Have you seen the show Ted Lasso? The funny thing when I <laughs> I actually have, and I watched it during Christmas, um, just before Christmas. So uh, <laughs> it's a really nice. TV series. Now, the beautiful thing about that TV series is that it's 
it has an underdog feel to it and I'm always rooting for the underdog so I really loved watching it and rooting for Ted Lasso's team through all the team <laughs> who's your who's your favorite character or it's your Ted spirit Lasso. animal Ted Lasso it's, it's Ted Lasso <laughs> it has to be he I mean he comes across as goofy and wise at the same time so I, I feel like that's me I don't know about the wise part but the goofy part I have a lot of it so I think uh, I like him a lot there was there was there was something about Ted Lasso where like his little like truisms that he would say and his little riddles it kind of reminds me of like Warren Buffett because Warren Buffett would say some kind of funny little bit edgy stuff about how like you know you can't get a baby faster by making nine girls pregnant you know yeah. it takes one girl to get pregnant for nine months and yeah. some you know some of the stuff Buffett would say and then you'd have Ted Lasso would be like hey what's the what's the what's the best animal in the world it's a goldfish three second memory be a goldfish and it's just like <laughs> it's like ted lasso warren buffett you've never seen him in the same room are they the same person <laughs> yeah definitely i mean also but the way he's able to inspire he comes without any knowledge of football but he manages to steal uh, like make a team that was not even playing very well to play very well and to be a team to take care of each other to spy each other to greater heights and to get people like Roy who are about to retire to hand over the mandate a bit better to to the new youngsters coming up i think that was it was an inspiring movie to watch and yeah. I, but i was a bit shocked also by the level of which maybe i don't know if all americans are like ted lasso they don't know a lot of <laughs> soccer rules <laughs> Oh man, I thought I thought the part about the offsides was hilarious because when I watch soccer, I I I'm like how is that offsides versus this is offsides like I just I thought it was fantastic. I was I was laughing out loud and it, it it's it's actually funny that you bring up the fact that he's just, you know, this complete outsider that didn't know soccer and yet turns a team into, you know, someone that doesn't believe into a believing team that actually starts winning and I saw a tweet and I forget who it was, but they basically mentioned you know, like some of the most interesting takes or some of the most non-conventional ideas, misunderstood ideas are from people that didn't start in investing. Like they were, his, you know, history majors, psychology majors, science majors, and they stumbled into investing. I think that's so interesting how if you detach yourself from something, you actually have a fresh set of eyes that others that live in the world every day can't see. Yeah, because you rem- I remember like the first... The first interview he had, a lot of people were very skeptical about him. I remember like the whole town was like, this guy doesn't know anything about our team, doesn't know anything about football. He has no clue about the rules. But I think in the end, they come to appreciate that there is a different perspective he brings to the game that they all benefited from. And I think that's that's something that I think uh, we need to learn, I think. So especially to look out for people who are not like us and still learn from them. I think that's... Uh, a powerful lesson for me yep. agreed let's shift now to your time at colossus which i think is super cool how did you how did you get that gig working with patrick oshag over at over at colossus making transcripts and all that stuff that must have been super cool it was super cool i i, I would attribute it a lot more to the aggressive aggressive side of me so <laughs> the thing is i it was in uh, back last year uh, i love i love invest like the best so i've listened to it i think since 2017 uh, 2016 and i listened to at least 80 or 90% of all the episodes out there uh, and i think I just just one day it hit me like i could make a transcript of one of the uh, podcasts which i had listened to like around 5 6 times which was by uh, chris brumstrand 
and oh, he, yep. he, had talk, he had talked about quality companies and then he had this in, very insightful perspectives on Berkshire Hathaway, on Cummins, on, on uh, Dollar General and all. So I decided, let me make a transcript of it. So I, I took the, I downloaded the podcast itself, uh, transcribed it myself. And then, um, I mean, through using one of the uh, podcast transcribing tools also, and then added to it some flair, I added pictures, I added the links to all the things that he talked about. I found out all his, uh, I kind of read everything about Chris Bronson. So I became like an expert on him. So I, having put that together, I was like, okay, I need to share this with someone somewhere. So I, I didn't know the copyright rules. So I was like, okay, let me reach out to uh, Patrick and just ask him, is this, this something that he would be willing for me to share? And he was really impressed by that and told me, yeah, I'm actually creating something similar at Colossus. I didn't know anything about it. I was yep. like, let me get you in touch with the CEO. And then I got in touch with the CEO and then the rest is history. So I started making the transcripts for them. And then, I mean, one lead, one thing leads to another and in the end i've read i've gone through around 40 plus transcripts uh, wow. with colossus so within a period of around one or two months uh, that is november december last year wow so you i mean that's 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 super cool for anybody listening like if you want to get somebody i mean and it's not like your goal was to get in front of patrick and be like hey let me work for you but what you did is you provided value for him and then in return he's like wow okay let me get you in touch with somebody like i think that's awesome yeah, no, I, that I do that often. I try. I do a lot of cold emails, cold tweets, cold uh, everything. So to try and get. I mean, if I see someone that who's out there who I would want to be next to and learn from, I always try to go out for this. So I think it's it's a good lesson to learn. It helped me a lot along the way. And in the end, like the benefits from being together with these guys at Colossus are incredible people who are building something really remarkable. Like uh, and then. And inside they have this mantra of creating A plus kind of content and quality. And I think that, that helps me also think differently in terms of making the transcripts for them also. Got it. And you've done, like you mentioned, 40, you know, 35 to 40 of these in a month and a half. And that was, you know, going back to no, basically November, December. You mentioned Chris, Chris Bloomstrand. Um as one of your favorites, what were, what were some other ones? I know we're going to, we're going to get into Michael Mobison, but what are, what are some other transcripts and episodes that for maybe people that haven't listened to O'Shag's podcast, um, you can, you can say, Hey, watch, listen to these first and then read my transcripts, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) I would say Brent Bichot. Uh, he's amazing. He has amazing perspectives on small businesses and investing in boring businesses. So I think his whole uh, his whole mindset is he takes uh, he takes boring businesses like uh, let's say swimming pools and dating and then those are the kind of stuff that you invest in uh, which most people don't think about there and then transforms them so he has this unique perspectives on working with small businesses so I think another one that stood out for me was some guys called Boyd Vati from South Africa so I think he organizes every year to have people go to South Africa and go through these uh, experiences in the world I think one of the lessons I got from him was about lions and uh, and them hunting so I've grown up in Africa and I've seen a couple of lions but I've never noticed that lions actually go from 18 hours of deep sleep and then to a few hours of intense hunting for for an animal to eat Mm. and then once they kill they actually again go back down to the resting uh, period again so I think that kind of uh, I think that's how from what I gathered from them like 
that's how life should be is to live like with this intense intense period and then rest intense rest i think that's also very important so the other guys like savnit singh who took warren buffett's value investing principles and then went to invest them in uh, to put them in the world of software so they invest in uh, critical businesses in the world of software so i think all these episodes make you really think a bit differently and very much they're very inspiring to listen to and i think one of the things that you can also uh, find like a red thread throughout all the transcripts that I, is the is the part of the kindest thing anyone has ever done to you i think yeah. that's moving you will see like there are very many people who have benefited from another person's kindness and i think i have a lot of stories in my life also of people who've done the same like uh, done something for me uh took me and then invested in me when they didn't see and i myself didn't see anything in myself so i think mm. those are kind of really beautiful lessons that you can pick throughout the podcast but it's it's an incredible podcast man it's if they are if I were to create a podcast i would want the quality of that to be that's the standard that's the a plus standard for me yeah it's funny you mentioned the lion i guess we'll call it their daily routine 18 hours of sleep and then this intense fighting sessions or hunting sessions it reminds me of a, a mantra that Manish Pabrai also has where he says that investing should be a, a leisure like a like a like a game of gentleman's leisure or something where you spend most of your time doing nothing about investing and you know you're reading you're playing bridge if you're him you're taking naps um and then once you find an idea that hits you over the head that's when you go all in all out kind of the same way where lion sleeping all day and then he finds prey and then he spends all his efforts hunting once he makes a kill he goes back to sleep that's true i think life shouldn't be all the time action i think and i think that's why you need to step back a bit and maybe one of the lessons i've also learned in scandinavia is something they also called uh, frisk luft so it's a norwegian concept of going out for a walk in nature a little bit you know just relaxing enjoying being one with nature and then coming back mm. and then for the intense period of work so the a normal scandinavian works 8 to 5 and then on friday by 2 o'clock they're out of their office i see you on monday and they once they are off work they're off work like you can't call them so i think that kind of concept of like okay there's a lull period where you're just chilling relaxing waiting thinking through things looking at stuff and then a period of action where you go in zoom in on the prey get it and then sit down and relax and enjoy it i think that's a very good concept to to remember is it is it something that you struggle with where you're deciding you know how much time do i spend at this like hunting type work this energy because one thing that i struggle with is I sit between these two ideas right where you know I probably should take you know more walks take take time off get my brain out and just kind of free thinking I know David Perel talks about this a lot too but then on the other hand I do have this you know devil on my shoulder saying hey look for every time that you spend not studying companies not looking at ideas somebody else is going to do that and then they're going to get better than you um and that's something I really struggle with I don't know if you've you've mentioned or you've you've had any similar things I mean because your work ethic seems you know less than less than nobody's um and kind of uh you know at the at the at the pinnacle of what of what someone would want to do i'm not the best example of resting and i think uh, my family knows that <laughs> i am always a bit more on the hunt than i should be um uh, i mean i i like reading i spend a lot of hours on twitter uh, reading content reading transcripts reading books and going through 
probably 35 to 40 podcasts in two months. That was intense also. So I think I'm not the best example in terms of work-life balance, but I'm trying to learn it. It's, I, I think it's good to pace life a little. If you want to live to be 90, I don't think Warren Buffett, like the classic value investor that we all cherish, works all the time. I think there are times when he's also chilling and people are wondering like for two or three years, hey, are you not making a, an investment or what's up? as he lost his mojo and i think i also was reading his book over the over the over the holidays this year his uh his biography also and i realized like there are also periods long periods where he doesn't act but then there are periods he acts also i think it's uh the best kind of investing can actually come from that just periods of inaction i think and just learning to tone down and to zoom out a little bit it's it's something I struggle with, but I think it's something that we should aim for. I think it's an ideal we should aim for every day working towards that, I would say. You specifically mentioned, and I'm going to go back to it, Michael, Michael Mobison in your blog is someone that's really influenced your thinking. And I think for any investor that's ever looked at Twitter or read anything about valuation and competitive advantage, I think they'd say the same thing about Mobison. What about his writing or thinking has impacted you the most about whether it's general markets or individual companies? I would say he has an amazing grasp of the fundamentals of investing, which has gained, I think, through like his involvement in research. So the remarkable thing about him is that he has this deep knowledge of markets and how they work. And then he uses that to let them influence the way he invests and the way he talks to people and, and the way he writes. He has a remarkable production rate. I think I was trying to compile his writings for the past 20 years. I think he has averaged around four or five papers every year. And I think that's and every paper is different from the other and they had new insights. And I looked at this paper from 1997 where he talks about Amazon and valuation, valuing Amazon using real options, uh, meaning that the company itself, it has embedded itself an option that it can grow, the different aspects of it can grow to, diff to different sides. So you can't use a DCF model, it would be limiting. So you look at that is a 1997 paper and I'm like, and then you look at the way Amazon has grown and developed over the years. And you see that this is someone who has a really deep insight into how businesses work very well. And he has kept that consistently over a period of 20 plus years. I think he was celebrating 30 years uh, the other day in, in the world of investing. So I think that's impressive. And here's something small that actually inspired me. So I'm an, I'm an accountant who's happened to be in finance. So sometimes I wonder whether my impact within finance will be limited because of the fact that I'm an accountant. But he, amazingly, he has a collaborator. I think he's called AI Rappaport. And I think he, he has, he's an accountant also and who also works with Michael Mobus in some of the, to produce some of the great work. So I think that has also been a point of inspiration, which is small, but very, very interesting. So I would say he's a world-class analyst. And he, I mean, if I had to pick a mentor, it would be him. Yeah. 100%. I mean, I'm trying to get him on the podcast one day, but I still feel like uh, he's got he's got bigger, bigger fish to fry than than someone like myself. But who knows? We'll see what happens. <laughs> I want to I want to I want to dive now into your investment strategy. And, um, you know, particularly the way you see and invest in Nordic companies. That's an area that I really, I really enjoy, uh, especially Sweden. So it's, 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 it's actually funny that you live in Sweden. I really, really like studying Swedish businesses. And I think there are so many high quality Swedish companies out there. Um, and just the Nordics in general too, I'm starting to get into the IPO market in the Nordic countries, which I think could be a really interesting unfished 
uh, space. So how would you define your investment strategy and maybe how has that evolved over time the more you've consumed this content and you know done these transcripts? I assume that the investor you were three years ago or even three months ago might not be the investor you are today. Yeah, I agree totally. I mean, after reading all that content and consuming other content from Michael Mobosin to Brent Bishol to all these guys, I think you, you get to appreciate that they're very deep insights in businesses that they have, which you could incorporate in your kind of investment strategy. So I think I've, I've tried different things at different times. I actually even tried day trading a little bit, but then I realized that I'm not, that's not for me. I, I lost quite a bit of money, which is friends money, which I tried to invest in some of these businesses. I think some of it we lost, like, I think at some point 90 or 70% of what we'd invested. And I think that was quite the brutal introduction to, to investing, but over time, I think I've come to be more of a medium to long-term investor. Uh, so I have a difficult, uh, I have a difficult time paying attention to stock prices each and every minute and every day of it. So I try to just invest and then just maybe check up on the portfolio every quarter to see what the CEOs are saying and, and stuff like that. And then I also try to make, invest in kind of boring businesses that are more so critical to the, to the they're, they're critical to, the, to other businesses and to individuals. So I, I, I would pick a company like let's say TSMC, uh, which is more American, let's say. So I, I actually invest in both Nordic and uh, American markets. So I'd pick a company like TSMC, which is which produces uh, semiconductors. So it's a critical company in the supply chain, both to, yep. uh, I mean, it sits in the middle, kind of. It produces for both uh, in, in uh, Apple and all these kind of products also. So I think other companies like one, maybe I would pick a more Nordic company is one that IPO'd last year called Nordnet. So in the Nordics, what's the, what's the ticker on that one? Uh, I don't think it's invested in the US. I think it's just Nudnets. Um, uh, I'll, I'll give you a link to this in the show notes. Maybe you can include it there. Yeah, so cool. Nudnets uh, IPO'd last year. Uh, I applied for some shares. It's IPO'd uh, around, I think, September last year. Uh, so they are a platform. They offer, they are like a brokerage uh, business. So they offer a place for people to invest in shares. And the cool thing about the brokerage companies in the, in the Nordics is that they offer you kind of, a, they also are, are able to do tax for you. So you don't have to worry about taxes at the end of the year. So all you need is to click a few links and then they submit everything to that, to the, to the authorities. So I think the company operates in four markets itself. Uh, so in the Nordics itself, the savings are here, market here is around 30 trillion, I think, Swedish kronas. And so they project their, their uh, total addressable market to be around 10 kind of trillion uh, Swedish kronas. Mm-hmm. Um, when they IPO, they had an EPS of around 1.25. And then that also like uh, uh, they had an, a price to earnings ratio of around 30, which was comparable to the company okay. in the Nordics also of around... Yeah. Uh, their biggest competitor is Avanza, which is one of the bigger pr- platforms, which is also trading at the same price. Uh, so I thought that this company is very interesting in the sense that uh, in the Nordics, only 10%, let's say, of all Swedes actually, actually 10% of, let's say, Norwegians invest in the stock market. And these hmm. are and these are very few. These are very, in a small in a small country like uh, Norway, only 10% actually owns shares and even fewer right. own more than one share. So that was pretty shocking for me. And so you see like they are a company that's operating in such a, a small market, uh, 
and and the small and growing market. So I thought like this is a really good company to invest in last year. And I think since then it's been it's up uh, 2x and I think it's it has more potential for growth at the end of the day. So it's nice. growing really fast. They I think because of this also surge in in uh, investing by individual investors uh, this past one year, they benefited a lot. They, I think they 3X'd their revenues uh, in, they 2 x their revenues in 2019, the past nine months. So pretty impressive uh, growth rates, uh, so to speak. So I think those are kind of companies in the Nordics are very prevalent. So I would say like, even I am still learning a lot about the Nordic markets and how it operates. So there are pockets of really good value businesses. Sweden has a rich history of, uh, of being a country that produces very good businesses. Like uh, one of the company, one of the early companies I invested in is was called Atlas Copco. Uh, not many okay. people know it, but pe many people know Caterpillar. So they are competitors to Caterpillar. They are quite the, quite the big, influential Swedish company that competes with Caterpillar on a global scale and manages actually to get revenues, uh, which are substantial. So right. I think there are lots of these kind of businesses well run. And it's because Swedish has a rich history of being a country that is, is uh, offers a favorable platform for businesses to grow and develop. Hmm. What does uh, Atco do? Atco, they, they are an industrial company. So they do almost the same thing like Caterpillar do. So they, uh, they provide machinery, they provide uh, mining equipment. And, and it was actually the first investment I made in the Nordics uh, oh, wow. because, it, uh, because, the, because back then I was, uh, was part of the CFA Institute um, a research challenge, uh, my first time to actually analyze a company. And then they gave us Atlas Copco. I was pretty impressed by the revenues. They, they have almost 12 billion, if I remember correctly, they have $12 billion in revenues uh, just... Uh, I think last year. So they, they're a pretty big company. Uh, they do well, they're doing well. And learning about them and seeing that they were switching at that point, they were, they were in the process of switching from being more of just providing equipment to actually being a service company. So which is- mm. Kind of like what Apple's trying to do, I guess. Yeah, so they're, they're, moving, they're moving from being just providing the equipment to people to being more people who service the equipment, which was where the money is. So they, they've taken a bit of a hit this year, but I think the move towards being a service oriented kind of business has also generated more margins and more revenues for them. So they, in the process, they've also spun out a bit, a one part of the company, which is now a separate company. And I think the original shareholders are pretty happy, you know, getting a bit of shares also in the spin-off also. So these kind of companies are quite common here. Volvo is, it has its home here. Spotify, this is home. Skype, this is home. Uh, so the Nordics are pretty much where you can find good, very good and valuable businesses. So people are welcome here. Now, how do you, how do you find these businesses? What's your, I guess, filter, filtering process? Do you run certain screens or is it, you know, you just look at recent IPOs or what is, what does that look like? So the thing is, I'm, um, I'm a, I'm a very serial networker. So I try to, to chat with as many people as possible. So most companies I come across, I mostly come across them. Uh, because I've talked to someone somewhere. So yeah. like if I hear someone, uh, let's say there was a time when I, when I was having an interview with a company and then I realized one of the companies also, uh, it's traded. Like I think the company was Twilio. I had a, 
had an interview with them to be an analyst there. I didn't get a job, but I at least knew, learned a lot about the company to realize they're critical in the infrastructural system. So I was like, okay, I'm going to invest in that. So that happens a lot. I also have a group of friends we discuss with investments. We tell each other what, what are you investing in? What's interesting? I also read the news a lot, uh, try to find companies which are dropping, have dropped in pr- price a lot, and then try to find out is is the issue that they're having more structural or something that is also like a bit temporary and which will change. So those are the kind of ways. I also have a list of companies which are in my, I would say my watch list. So I keep an eye on them. I have around, I have around 10 to 20 companies in that watch list. And once it drops in price, I just check it and then, okay, it's good. And then I include it in the portfolio or not. Uh, so basically it's just mostly knowing people. I, I could create screens, but I don't, I'm, I'm a bit sector agnostic and I have a small, very small portfolio, like it's mm. personal portfolios so is very small. So I don't have to, I still don't have to create a big screen. Maybe in the future, if I develop a fund, then I'm able like to create screens and all that. But I actually yeah. have developed uh, screens at least for a hedge fund which I was working in in uh, Norway uh, in four years ago. So then I was able to develop them a screen for the long side and for the short side uh, back then. What other countries in the Nordics besides Sweden do you find extremely interesting? Like whether it's Norway, like you said, or whether 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 it's some other country. Norway has very nice companies. They have a very really interesting. Uh, I think I did an analysis of them. They have a they have a nice salmon industry. Uh, Norwegians eat a lot of salmon and they produce, they, I think they were the second highest producers of salmon after Argentina, I think in the world. And so they export a lot of it. So I found a company called Norway Royal Salmon. Very interesting. Back then it was priced, uh, uh, I think it was, uh, I can't remember the pricing, but once I, I bought it, it went up uh, 4X actually by then. Wow. I didn't do it the entire 4X <laughs> because I, I exited early. Uh, I think I was a bit scared. I think I think, I think that's something else that I've also learned in the process of investing, like to let your sellers, to, to let your winners keep going and not yeah. like bother them at all. So I think that's something I learned from that. So the salmon industry is very interesting. Uh, they have a very nice offshore drilling uh, is also very interesting in, in, uh, in, in Norway. Uh, in, in Finland, they have very nice companies in, uh, in gaming uh, Denmark had, uh, there's a company called Nets that was acquired by Visa. I, I think, I, I forget if it's Visa of MasterCard, but they mm-hmm. also have a very good uh, um, payment system companies also. Mm-hmm. So in the Nordics, there are pockets of spaces where there is really good uh, a good value to be seen. Uh, tech as a whole, as I've said before, Skype, Spotify, this is their home, very innovative companies here. So you have a very nice uh, real estate market uh, who's... Uh, Prices have been going up uh, since 1994. So wow, you're almost always guaranteed. Nordic, uh, in the Nordics, people are very, very interested in owning their own properties. There's a keenness to have your own home at the end of the day. Mm. Uh, payments infrastructure is very interesting. Uh, there are companies like Klarna, which is uh, IPOing later this year. So you should wait. You wait. You said Klarna. I, I feel like I've mentioned. I feel like I've seen a bunch of talk about Klarna coming around. Klarna is a uh, it's a pay uh, is a buy now pay later uh, okay it's so like after pay or something after like pay that also. so they are competitors to that so they're ipoing later this year so they they're very 
they're very innovative company. They're also growing really fast. Uh, uh, and I mean, check them out later this year. Uh, so generally the Nordics have very good companies, especially in the payment system. So uh, watch watch out in this space. They're a company like Trustly also, Swedish also. Uh, so check them out Trustly. soon. So they are private right now, Klarna and Trustly, okay. but I mean, they, they will be back in the market at some point in the future. Cool. So for... For, for areas like gaming also, you, uh, there's a company in Finland called Supercell, which pro, uh, produces Clash of uh, Clans and Clash Royale. Actually, Patrick did a, did a podcast with the CEO, so it's, it's something that you could check out. They are very nice gaming companies that have been acquired also by other publishers, uh, generally in the Nordics also. I, I guess when it, when, it, when it comes to video games, Sweden also has an amazing amazing uh, portfolio like you've got still front and then evolution gaming which is yeah. a business that i wish would decline in price at some point so i could so i could own them it's just an absolute beast um and then another thing that i would that i want to get your input on since you actually live live there in sweden there seems to be this country or i guess like this native advantage with swedish based companies with you know the swedish population and the and the way i'm going to bring that up is through cdon which was basically like a third party, first and third party marketplace um, platform, mm-hmm. kind of like an Amazon. And what's interesting is Amazon tried to get into Sweden and they did get into Sweden, but they didn't penetrate the way that Cedon does or did. And they just really haven't been able to capture much of the market that they thought they would. Have you noticed whether it's like a cultural thing within Sweden as to why these businesses flourish within their own native communities as opposed to these? outside companies just coming in like to me i would have assumed oh if amazon just comes into sweden it's going to be a no-brainer amazon's just going to take what they did in the u.s implement it into sweden and game over for any other competition why is that not the case i'm, I'm not an expert on sweden i would say but i would say like uh it's quite a difficult market for people for external people to come and just like take over i think um you need a little bit of local expertise a lot. Uh, Swedes and Norwegians and I mean Finns and Danish people, they are slightly different. I think from reading also the story of let's say Spotify, they actually started here. Uh, they developed deep roots here before they went abroad. So it's a good testing place for companies which are Swedish, but I think Swede companies from abroad do struggle here. Uh, but Amazon I think has the clout a little bit. It has uh, gained some traction. But I think also like maybe something that maybe difficult for external companies also here is the high tax rates here they're pretty high Mm. they're pretty steep so i think and also uh generally the uh, getting local labor is also not cheap also so it's quite expensive at the end of the day so i think those are some of the issues that may help you um, you may find struggling uh some companies struggle with here but i think also coming here uh, partnering with local uh, companies and finding a local person who knows the markets very well I think that can help and give you an advantage at the end of the day or acquiring a company here that can also help you a lot because there are a lot of companies which are also in the market uh, being sold here. So it's a, it has a very vibrant M&A market, very nice uh, private equity companies, VC companies are operating here. So I think it's good to keep an eye. Maybe the best way to enter the Nordic markets may actually be through M&A, through partnerships and all. Mm-hmm. I think that can help. And I think that's almost the case everywhere, even in Africa also. Uh, I mean, you, the best way is to come and partner with local talent who have local knowledge, and then you're able like to uh, get a little bit of the local market also. 
Got it. Now, I want to spend the rest of this podcast discussing African small businesses and then the payments infrastructure within Africa, which you wrote about a little bit and just kind of the challenges that uh, are in the country when it comes to you know, sending and receiving money. But first, before we go into, you know, kind of your investments in African small businesses, do you uh, invest in research in African stock markets, whether it's, you know, Nigeria or, you know, um, other other African countries? I would say that the I don't invest outside Kenya, sadly. Okay. Uh, it's also because I'm not very familiar with the markets uh, beyond Kenya right now. So I'm trying to gain knowledge. Uh, I've actually just created a small WhatsApp group with, uh, uh, WhatsApp is very commonly used by the, in the South, uh, Southern part of the world. So like in Africa, it's very common to use WhatsApp. So I've just created a small WhatsApp group and then incorporated a few 30 to 35 uh, investors, entrepreneurs and analysts. So I'm learning a lot from them. Uh, also about across Africa and how the markets work and operate. So I think the challenge is that you can't look at Africa as one continent. It's a little, it's 54 different countries, kind of the, uh, a, bit, a bit like the US with all the 50 states and how they're different they are from each other. So I think that's the same here. So I'm more knowledgeable in the East, on the East African markets. Uh, I understand the people there. I speak Swahili, so I'm able like, to talk to them in the local language and all. So I try to keep my investments space to at least Kenya for now. But as I get to know and collaborate with people around the continent, I would really want to invest in places like, let's say, Nigeria, Egypt, or Rwanda, which is one of the fastest growing economies in, in Africa also. So I would say my expertise is on Kenya and East Africa, but I, I learn a lot from the rest of the continent and I'm still learning. Awesome. What are what are some investments that you've made in Kenya, whether it's you know private companies or, or or public companies, and why? I should say also that I have not really done more like very structured investments. It's more like friends doing something, and then I'm like, okay, let okay. me help you. Uh, and and I've restricted it mostly also right currently because I don't have like a, a vehicle or a structure to do this formally. But I'm trying mm-hmm. to develop one and yeah. develop expertise in that also. Um, I would say um, I've been investing in friends' businesses. So like uh, there's a friend who does a travel company. His expertise is basically he tries to get, if you're coming to Kenya so that you don't, uh, people mostly come and, you know, you're enjoying Nairobi, but Nairobi looks a, a lot more like the U.S. than to, to the normal Kenyan world. So I think they try not to take you to places where every tourist goes to, but they try to take you to these unique places in Kenya. So like they take you fishing in Lake Victoria with the local fishermen, and then they take you camel riding up in the north of Kenya with the local people. So they take you farming a little bit in the, in the western part of Kenya. So I think those kind of unique experiences is what they try to give you. So I try to, I, when I see someone with passion, with drive and wants to grow their businesses, I tell them like, I'm here, the sounding board, I help them maybe reading their pitch decks, looking at the financial valuation models and and maybe giving them space to pitch the more their business to me and then I try mm-hmm. to make it better so uh and then I maybe ask maybe if they want to partner if they want me on board as an advisor so that's what I do so what I've realized is that my my operations and transactions with people in the west has helped me gain a wealth of information and knowledge which are transferable to Kenya so I try to be available to them to be mm-hmm. able to develop the capital markets there so the businesses that have been invest, invested or at least 
uh, worked with is a logistics company. I've worked with the fashion business and I've worked with uh, uh, the travel company that I just mentioned also. Got it. Now, why should people, and this is you know kind of a big, I guess, paint it like a 30,000 foot view of the African investment scene, but why should people care about um, you know the growth and stuff that's happening over in Africa? Is there is there, you know, structural changes that are going to happen over the next five to 10 years that are going to create these really intense, um, you know, positive feedback loops for value creation in Africa, where if people aren't paying attention or at least reading up on it, that they're going to miss? I think you're missing out on half. Okay, let me put it this way. Um, the landmass of the world, I just looked up some statistics just before the podcast. So like, 20% of the world's land mass is in Africa. So like you're missing out on that much of the world when you're not paying yeah, attention just to, begin to with. Africa, <laughs> just to begin with. And then you have 362 million people in Africa who are between the ages of uh, 15 and 64. So a very young population, average age of, uh, let's say 20, I would say just below 20. Wow. So you have a bit, a seventh of the world's population is in Africa also. And they approximately, by 2050, because of the fast population rise, you may have like half the world's population growing in Africa. So sometimes when you look at the pyramids, the population structures for Western countries, they're like, they're like uh, at the top is where 80, uh, 60 plus is where most of the people are. But in Africa, you look at it, it's like a pyramid, like down there is where the people are, the young and vibrant population. So you're missing also on Africa's middle class is the second fastest growing. The last time I checked the statistics, I think. And I think also uh, the middle class is one that will drive consumption in the next couple of years or so. So you, you're also looking at a very young population that is connected, actually. I think I was just looking at around 456 million of the people in Africa. That's, I think, uh, more than a third of the population uh, use mobile phones. So I think the penetration wow. rate is pretty high in Africa. So the internet penetration rate is also uh, growing pretty fast. It's not that high. It's growing at, I think, a KGAR, I think of 10% to the next, in the next, uh, I think the last time I checked was 2018 to 25. So I think you have this young, vibrant population that wants to take the country to the next level. So if you want to really be part of the next phase of growth. Uh, I think that's where you need to be. You need to be paying attention to Africa. Got it. And within Africa, I, I would assume one of the really interesting spaces is on the topic of payments, whether that's digital, um, mm. even even banking and kind of the, the, the digitization of banking going on over there. You wrote uh, a blog post about this. And I want you to talk to us about the uh, remittance problem within Africa, and then specifically why it's so hard for countries like Ghana and Nigeria, which are geographically so close together, um, why it's so hard for those two countries to send money to one another. I think I'll speak this from a personal perspective. I would say like I, I send money. I mean, a lot of Africans I know who are abroad also like we have this we kind of joke around, we call it the African tax. So if you're abroad, you have to support people back home in some way and send money. So like I send money to Kenya very often and it takes me a lot. A lot I mean, I've explored different ways of sending money to Kenya. And right now the, the current, uh, the current uh, payment mode I use, they charge me, I think 0.1% of the costs uh, to send money to Kenya, which is pretty cheap. Yeah. But if you look at the, 
transfer of remittances within Africa itself. So you find that it's around 8%, like you pay 8% of the money that you're sending ends up being uh, eaten up in costs. And the global average, I think, should be around six or five. So you are having it being 1.5x the global average at the end of the day. So I think this is money that could have been used somewhere, but it ends up it being eaten up as costs at the end of the day. So, and then you find this, you find this weird statistics that show you that the amount of money it costs for you to send money, let's say from Ghana to Nigeria is around 20 or percent. And I think that's- 20%. That's a lot of money. So wow. they're very high costs to just send money from countries which are next to each other, which is South Africa to Lesotho. The highest, the five highest cost barriers actually, South Africa to Lesotho, South Africa, Botswana, South Africa, Angola, Angola, Namibia, Ghana, Nigeria. And these are countries which are pretty close to each other. And that it costs you a lot of money to do this. So I think, I think that should not be the case. And I think that's why I'm excited by companies that are trying to fix this kind of problem in Africa and just try to reduce the friction that is there in terms of sending money from one country to the other. So what kind of payment structures do you normally use like in Kenya, you know, or in between Nigeria? Is it, you know, cash app Venmo or is it WhatsApp pay? Uh, WhatsApp pay is a future, I think, but, and especially because a lot of people in the South really do use WhatsApp. I think it's, uh, it has the potential, but it's not yet there. So one of the areas uh, in Kenya within the biggest mobile transfer system is M-Pesa. It's called M for mobile. And then Pesa is a Swahili word for money. So you can't talk about money transfer in Africa without talking about M-Pesa because they are one of the biggest, uh, uh, they, they transfer a huge chunk of money in Kenya. So the last time I was in Kenya, I had all my money in M-Pesa and I, I would go to these vendors and retailers and just, I, I, would, uh, I would send the money to them without, I, I don't have to, I don't have to have a, a, first of all, a smartphone. I just use any type of phone and just send them the money. It just uses wow. Yeah, it's it's very it's it's uh, it's exciting. It's a very powerful technology. So you do that to pay your bills. You do that now to pay for your electricity. You can pay for solar energy also, and just do everything there. And hmm. people can come pay you through M-Pesa. You can transfer money to your bank account through M-Pesa and get it back again through M-Pesa. You can send peer-to-peer transfer also business to peers and stuff like that. So I think that's uh, that's that's exciting. Like to see. Uh, that those kind of uh, companies doing that. And I think the other one that I actually wrote about in that article, which excited me is Cheaper Cash, uh, which sends money within the African continent. So the, the, the thing that I liked about them, for individuals, it's free to send money. Uh, but for businesses, then you pay for, you know, a little bit of merchant fees and all, uh, and all that. And that's how they make money. And then they make the peer-to-peer transfer uh, from person to person free at the end of the day. So I think mm-hmm. that's, those, those are exciting innovations that are happening. So other companies are also like innovating within Africa. I think there's another one called Flutterwave I heard about the other day. So they're also okay. trying to, they're all trying to make this kind of cost that we're seeing of this pain point of sending money from one place to another in Africa to be reduced at the end of the day. And none of these companies are public yet, correct? None of these companies are public yet, sadly. Uh, I think that's another sad thing that I also noticed. Like some, some of the fastest growing companies in Africa are not listed and they they are out there. Our capital markets are pretty small. And I think most of these companies actually choose to list in the US, sadly. Like one okay. of them is called Jumia. Uh, it's, uh, 
they had like oh the, yeah was that jmia i think uh i think know, my they, boy what's his name uh, chris chris seifel he yeah. was big on jumia yeah and that's they're, killed it. they're an exciting company to see what they're doing they i mean they're having a bit of struggle because as you say like the challenge you're having currently is that the infrastructure is just being laid right now uh, mm-hmm. a lot of the technology and logistics and all so we hope in a couple of years i think those kind of problems that we had would go away so jumia helps uh, people do it's like the amazon of africa i think they tout themselves at that so they are they listed in the U, in the us also so sadly they don't choose because our capital markets i think are quite small if you look at uh, and um, uh, safaricom safaricom is one of the biggest kenyan companies they they're the, they're the ones who own the mpesa brand so they they are actually almost 60% of the entire stock market in kenya and that's really wow. sad so that's a <laughs> so what is it safari everywhere. world safari it's safaricom safaricom safari for the safari you know the african safari and then yep. com communications kind of so i think it's sad though that it one company occupies such a big space but just so shows you that they they are kind of outsized role played by some of these companies in Kenya. Hmm. Now why do you think that is because I feel like that's a chicken and the egg problem there where the capital markets aren't as well funded and it's it's going to take one of these companies whether it's a flutter wave or like you mentioned or a chipper cash it's going to take one of them to just say you know what we're going to list here and then once they do then it's kind of the catalyst for other companies to list in Kenya and then you've got that nice virtuous cycle going on i think yeah there needs to be someone who's, who has to be bold enough to break that cycle i think uh, because you talked about michael mobasin i think and some of the content i've read before about let's say uh about how companies list on the stock market so mostly people companies you know, companies use ipos but mm-hmm. then along comes uh, spotify and they say we are going to do direct listing and then they champion that and then as you've seen the past couple of weeks and months we've seen more companies do direct listing and now there's also sparks so it, it has to take someone to take that bold initiative to go against the the wave of just listing in the US and just say okay we are cheaper cash or we are flutter wave and we are going to list at the Nairobi stock exchange and i think that would actually kick start a lot more so it's again as you say it's a chicken egg problem but i would also want to really like uh, hope that companies venture capital companies and private equity companies in the owned companies in Africa would consider also IPOing and then mm-hmm. instead of doing because a lot of the in in the emerging markets a lot of the sell is to secondary buyers or to strategic buyers at the end of the day so i think that that needs to change we need to IPO some of these companies uh, let the public also see okay these uh, jumia being listed on the Rwanda Rwanda stock exchange and we can buy a bit of it and i use it i think that also helps the people to see like okay uh, i'm i'm supporting this business like safaricom but i can also buy its shares at the same time so, mm-hmm. so i'm supporting jumia but i can also buy the shares locally here in the stock exchange so i think we need to see more of that and i hope to see more of that yeah and i think that maybe just to go off on a tangent for a sec i think that's the truest form of democratizing um investment it's not necessarily you know the zero fees for robinhood um cuz i think attaching the cost of investing to democratizing it doesn't do it as much a justice as just saying look even if it costs a little bit if you don't have any companies listed in africa just having companies listed in africa and then you paying even if it's a little bit paying to be a part of that 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 in and of, that in and of itself democratizes investing within the country 
And then that creates a huge environment for, you know, 10, 20 years from now of people investing within the country and more and more capital flowing in. I mean, I would hope that would be the case so that more companies can list. I would imagine a lot of it, the way I see a lot of excitement when small, some small companies list in some of these stock exchanges in Africa, I would expect there would be 100x more excitement if some of these comp- fast-growing African companies also list in the stock market, especially the, the ones we're very proud of, which are also getting funding, Series A, Series B in the markets also. So they should consider tapping into their African savings because we have a lot of savings also, and a lot of these uh, people who are abroad also sending remittances home. They also want to be part of these fast-growing companies back home listed there also. Mm. Yeah. What other industries, I know we've mentioned payments um, and, you know, kind of the, the, the digitization of that. What other industries do you think offer low-hanging fruit for, you know, high, we'll call them embedded remittance costs within Africa now, where you think, you know, these industries in the next five to 10 years um, are going are gonna to be way more efficient and way less cost to the consumer? So I would say the agricultural sector is very exciting because uh, Africa, I think, has the potential to feel to feed uh, most of the world if the agricultural infrastructure is actually developed to a good extent. But also mm-hmm. not merely the agricultural, but also like uh, mo- helping some of the countries move more from being just producers to actually value additive creation at the end of the day, so that the cocoa that is produced in Ghana is also, you know processed and then they have Ghana branded chocolate around the world or something like that. So I think those are those are places that where we could add a lot of value. I see that happening a little bit here and there in Africa. And I think that's very interesting. But also other areas which have a lot of potential is I think travel post pandemic. I think there's a lot of realization now that people want to travel around the world. And I think Africa is no exception and people want to travel a lot more and see the continent and see. And I mean, it's sad though that I've grown up in Kenya and I rarely got the chance like to travel across town to go and visit someone, let's say in South Africa or something like that. So I think that those opportunities should be more available in the future. So as infrastructure develops, and I think something else that uh, people should pay attention to, there is an actually something we call the Africa Continental Free Trade Agreement that has actually come into effect, I think this January. So it's uh, aimed at removing trade barriers and taxes, and there's likely to be more flow of money in the continent at a lower cost mm-hmm. So I think pay attention to that. Uh, we are, we are become, we, the continent is growing and growing fast. So we are creating something similar to the EU uh, where you can have flow of goods for people. Uh, hopefully that also becomes a catalyst for change uh, in Africa. Yeah, and then just to kind of put a bow on that conversation, the one of the bull pitches that I've seen for Africa and maybe just kind of the rails at which the bull market's going to run on is the fact that in Kenya and in these and in these other countries within Africa, they're going to operate on a starting base that's way more advanced than the technology infrastructure that we have in the U.S. And that's that's kind of the common mantra I've heard of you know okay well Africa is going to grow incredibly fast because like you said when you go to a retailer you're doing you know it through M M pay or or um, yeah yeah M pesa so I mean that. You know, we're just starting to implement here in the U.S. with with you know digital wallets and stuff like that. So, um, you know, how how much of that is actual truth, and then how much of that maybe is just a um, over optimistic analysis of the situation? I would say 
I would say it's not being overly optimistic to say that some of the technology here would actually, that you're developing, let's say in the West is actually, can actually be moved to Africa to do a lot of good there. I would say like maybe, uh, let me give you an example, like M-Pesa uh, is an African innovation also. And, and something else also is also that we can learn both ways. It's like there's technology actually being applied in, African, in Africa that actually can be useful sometimes in the West also. So uh, an example is M-Pesa, which was developed way back in 2007. And Kenyans could already send money peer to peer using their phones, using very old phones and not like they don't they didn't have to be smartphones at the end of the day to send and receive money and that kind of technology only came let's say today in in norway alone it came uh, i think two or three years ago through an app called vips that's how they got it like way after kenya has gotten some of this mm -hmm. technology so i think it goes both ways in this way that there's a lot we can learn from africa and it's good to go down there with also uh, with a spirit of wanting to learn from them and also wanting to share the technology that we have, like, hey, we have this, where can we implement it? And also ask yeah. them like, and not, not just, I, I don't like the, the aspect of just copying and pasting, uh, but also asking ourselves, this is the technology, but what's a, what problem, what actual problem are we solving by doing right. this? I think that's, that's what excites me a lot of about a lot of the young people who, are, who I see around in Kenya uh, and in around Africa also, they're asking themselves the tough questions like, what's the problem and how can we solve it? And which kind mm -hmm. of technology is available and which one can we develop to also help us uh, achieve what we want to achieve? Hmm. I think that was very, I think that was very, very well said. Um, kind of a, kind of a great way to, way to, way to end that discussion. And, you know, as we're, as we're wrapping up here, I mean, this has been an hour of just knowledge dropping. I've, I've learned so much just from this hour that we've had the Zoom call. So I know people are going to really enjoy this conversation. Now I'm going to ask you the two kind of final questions here. Well, actually three, um, you know, like I said, thanks so much for taking the time to time to do this. I know what time is it over there again? Cause it's, it's what three o'clock here. Is it late over there? <laughs> It's nine, I think nine thirty. Oh, okay. PM. All right. All right. Yeah. So you're fine. Um, so first, first question, uh, where can people go to find more about you? I know you're on Twitter, so please give us that Twitter handle. Cause I think you're materially underfollowed on that platform. My Twitter handle it is at EK Mokaya. Uh, and my website is themokaya.com. Um, I also have a, a weekly newsletter called the weekly transcript. Uh, so we have, we have it at the weekly transcript.com. So where we do uh, me and my uh, colleague in the U S we just sit down and read transcripts of companies. So I think every week we do around 25 to 30 transcripts and then sift through them and then uh, aggregate the information into a weekly nicely done weekly newsletter with 25 quotes that gives you a good picture of the economy so i think those are the main places you can find me. i'm very very active on twitter uh, that's where i am got it now second question what are some things that you're trying to improve on as an investor this year i think i'm trying to be more patient um, hold stocks longer a little bit and not sell too often I think I've seen companies uh, that had gone up, I think, 2x. And then I was like, oh, this is full price. And then you sell them at that price. And then you see them go up, uh, I think, 5x from there. I think that has not been a pleasant experience, at least in the last two or three years. So I'm, re I'm learning to just hold a company and hold it for long enough to actually... And if a company is doing well and it's growing well, the people who are... Uh, running the company are actually solid people. I think there is no need sometimes to sell it uh, unless you think it's too overvalued. 
But mm-hmm. I also think I'm also learning to, I'm trying to learn to dive deeper into single companies uh, like uh, Chris Broomstone did on Berkshire Hathaway. So this year, I think I want to focus a little bit more on read all the letters by uh, Warren Buffett and and dig deeper, I think, into uh, individual investors like Chris Broomstrand, spend time with Ben Pichol and just try and dig and really understand how they think about businesses because I feel like uh, there are transferable skills there to be learned and that I can also impose my own uh, way of thinking in that. Hmm. Uh, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? Um, I'm a Christian, so I would have said Jesus, uh, but presently I would say I would really want to meet Michael Mobosin. So whenever you have him on the podcast, please uh, let me <laughs> meet him. <laughs> I will. I will say, hey, there's this guy, Eric, in Sweden. You're going to have to go there. He'll he'll have to travel to you, but let's <laughs> let's make it happen. And, I really uh, want to meet him. <laughs> yeah, I feel like that'd be, that'd be a fun dinner. So I've read uh, everything about him, so I'm ready. <laughs> yeah, 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 me too. So, <laughs> well, Eric, this has been an awesome conversation. Uh, I look forward to releasing this podcast and, um, you know, continue um, best of luck with your, with your PhD studies over in Sweden. Try to stay warm, and I look forward to chatting with you again. Thank you so much for the time.